This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon, everybody. You're very welcome to today's seminar with the um, Transitional Justice Institute. Uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke. I'm a TJI director, and it's my pleasure to chair today's seminar with our guest speaker, Maraid Enright. Um, Maraid's going to be talking about official legal histories and where to find them, and um, in the context of the recent mother and baby home report, um, Commission of Inquiry report. Um, Maraid is uh, currently reader in Feminist Legal Studies at Birmingham Law School and a Leverhulme Research Fellow. Um, it's a real pleasure to include her in our seminar series. Uh, Maraid is a, a long-standing friend of the TJI. In fact, she, um, amongst her distinguished appointments, she is in fact external examiner at the TJI LLM program um, and is a friend um, long before and outside of that um, in several collaborations, including things like the, the Northern Irish Feminist Judgment Project. So it's really a pleasure to, to welcome Maraid into what is such a timely and important uh, project and I think quite an important um, element of the sorts of thinking and critique that we um, try to facilitate and advance uh, here at the TJI. Um, so today, the format for today's seminar is that Maraid will speak for about 40 minutes um, and then we'll move to Q&A. Um, you have the chat function, uh, which you can find on the bottom right of your screen. You, should, you can feel free to post questions there uh, throughout the discussion. Um, and uh, in the Q&A, you'll also have the opportunity to, and indeed I would encourage you to, to turn on your camera and speak and speaker and, and uh, come and come and talk to us to ask your question. Um, and, um, and I think that's it. So just to reiterate a warm welcome to Maraid. We're, we're very, um, very excited to have you and looking forward to, to hearing your, your thoughts today. Um, great. Thanks very much for having me. This is part of the project that Catherine mentioned earlier that's funded um, by Leverhulme. Um, I'm supposed to be working on a project called Laws Inheritance. Um, and the focus of that project or the purpose of that project is to think about ways in which um, Irish law in the past, which as you know, ends sometime in the mid 1990s, uh, was complicit in various historical injustices. There has been a proliferation of new kinds of law around uh, what are defined as historical institutional abuse. And that proliferation of law, to me, suggests this tacit understanding that Irish law is okay, that Irish law is equipped to deal with these past injustices, these past traumas, without very much modification or without very much transformation. Um, judges are the appropriate people to chair inquiries and so on. Um, and it strikes me that that kind of comfort with or complicity or complacency, I suppose, around Irish legal culture could do with a bit of a nudge. Um, and this project is, this project that I'm pursuing is about um, recognising, I suppose, the fact that law is not innocent of power, that law is not innocent of violence, and to kind of dig back a little bit deeper into, um, I suppose, the processes by which we particularly as lawyers, but not only as lawyers, think about how we have inherited certain kinds of legal legacies from uh, carefully defined past. And so this analysis uh, in this paper, in this session, is very much at its beginning. Uh, it will probably depart from the abstract um, that I submitted and that was advertised. Range of provocations rather than a comprehensive argument. 
um, and the paper will be based on a fairly broad brush framing of certain elements of the very large Mother and Baby Homes Commission report rather than a very close reading of the text of that report. So this is very much kind of an exercise in workshopping an idea for probably several chapters of this kind of hope for a book that will come out of this project. So I very much kind of welcome everyone's engagement and observations. Um, I'm especially pleased to have this opportunity at the Transitional Justice Institute because I'm not really a transitional justice scholar. Um, I'm not really a historian, even though the paper will talk about legal history. Uh, it's an academic paper about academics. And this is um, kind of important to say because I can see from the the list of uh, people in the in, in the audience, people who've tuned in, the of um, people who have a much deeper sort of affected connection to these institutions and this history than others of us do. Um, and I know that this kind of analysis obviously cannot take the place of the kind of survivor memory, testimony and advocacy that many of you uh, are involved in. And one of the purposes of this paper is to affirm the validity and the primacy of that work and knowledge and to contest some of the ways in which um, academics and lawyers have been involved in marginalising that knowledge. So if anything that I say in the paper seems to be in conflict with that aim, please let me know. And the final thing to say is that this is an academic paper. It's not like a lot of the campaigning work that I've been involved in. So some might find it not terribly useful, um, but hopefully you'll find it um, interesting or worth your while anyway. Um, so uh, the purpose of the paper, I suppose, um, is that I wanted to respond to some of the defences of the report, that particularly the media defences of the report and the political defences of the report that followed its publication earlier this year. Um, as you all know, the report was deeply controversial. It was heavily criticised, not just by me, but including by me. And much of the defence of the report focused on its scholarly character. So, for example, Mary McAleese, former Irish president, said that she thought the report was scholarly and profound and criticisms of it were therefore unfair. And other uh, defences of the report, particularly in the Irish Times, emphasised the difficulty of the Commission's task, the volume of primary materials it had gone through, the sensitivity of the questions it was dealing with, uh, the legal impossibility of holding the commissioners accountable for any perceived mistakes, and of course, the authority qualifications and character of the commissioners themselves. And it struck me, this defensiveness struck me as strange. Um, it struck me as odd that there was such a limited recognition of the fact that this report is not only a scholarly history, that it is, uh, was commissioned for a very particular political and legal uh, purpose. And it struck me as odd that this defence was so vigorous, given that in, you know, in other public history contexts, for example, the various commemorations of centenaries that have been going on recently, there is an understanding of different modes of contesting public history. And um, there has been some um, significant uh, pushback and engagement from feminist historians, for example, media articles by people like Catherine O'Donnell, Lindsay Erna Byrne, um, but lawyers seemed to have less to say about why there might be some controversy about this relationship between history and legal responses to historical injustice. So there was sort of a gap in the public responses to the report that even though they're fairly, they're oversimplified, they're heavily spun, they're manufactured to some degree, I thought it might be helpful to just stand in that gap for a while 
and see how we might talk about relationships between history and legal responses um, to past injustices. Um, so I thought that when I went into the literature, went and hopefully <laughs> hoping desperately that somebody would already have done this necessary discussion of Irish approaches to historical injustice, legal historiography, methods and transitional justice and so on. I looked and looked if it's there, I missed it. And then I had the sinking feeling that I would have to start to write it myself. Um, and the literature is absolutely enormous, so I will have missed something. But the, this is the kind of basic structure of what it is that I want to say. So first of all, and I'll try to keep this a bit brief, I want to explain why the Mother and Baby Homes Commission uh, report, investigation report is not only history, but is a particular kind of Irish official legal history. And I want to say what I mean by that, that official legal history. Uh, secondly, and brief, fairly briefly, I want to draw out one element of the report's analysis. I want to look at how it presents the history of adoption law, just as an example of some of the kinds of analysis that I take issue with. Now, in focusing on adoption, I know lots of people focus on adoption when they talk about the report. My intention isn't to ignore the many other abuses documented and indeed dismissed in the report. I'm just using adoption as a core example of some problems that are also evident in how the report deals with other issues. And we can discuss that um, in the Q&A, um, if you like. And then using that example of adoption, I want to open up the discussion um, a little further and talk about some difficult features of the ways in which the report does legal history. Ways in which, you know, in keeping with the theme of my broader project, um, legal history erases law's relationships to violence. And I want to focus on three themes, but I might not get to talk about all of them, so I'm just going to flag them for now. The first is this insistence on using um, past legal standards to evaluate the seriousness or existence of past harms. So, for example, if we want to determine whether adoption was forced or not, we look at the adoption law of the time in order to determine whether force occurred or whether adoptions were coerced or non-consensual. The second dimension of the way in which the report writes the history of, of adoption very committed to a particular chronology of legal development where adoption law was bad in the past but it gradually got better neatly chronological order and broadly speaking fine now and the last thing i want to talk about is the way in which today's law though in very sort of ambivalent and vague ways informs the uh, commission's engagement with sources the commission's treatment of evidence and particularly oral testimony and though I'll only discuss that briefly. Obviously, that dimension of the Commission's operations have been, has been hugely controversial, has received a significant public airing, so I'm sure we can talk about that in the Q&A as well. So the first thing I was going to say was that this report is a particular kind of doing of history. It's not like other kinds of academic history. The first thing is just to play with that word history a bit. And this isn't a novel contribution. A report dealing with the period 1922 to 1998, we might ask whether it is history at all. Right? So defining these injustices as historical is not obvious. It's not a natural uh, process that arises only with the past time. There is a technique of what's called periodization, distinction between periods of time going on here, and that periodization has a particular function. So Kathleen Davis, for example, talks about the relationship between past-present divides and sovereignty, the power 
um, of the state. So the purpose of defining, or one purpose of defining these injustices as historical is to suggest that they belong in a past which was forgotten, which must be rediscovered uh, in line with um, a kind of coming to terms with um, our na you know, a national we, the projection of a national self-image. Um, usually the kind of catharsis uh, that follows takes the form of an apology, but in Ireland the apologies are almost always conditional on and conditioned by the terms of a formal state investigation. And if you look, for example, at the terms of reference for the Commission, that's quite clear. The terms of reference charge the Commission with producing an objective and comprehensive history of that past. So the idea is that the Commission is going to um, tidy away uh, and in a very complete, objective, uncontestable way these difficult histories that have somehow seeped to the surface. And the Taoiseach, in his apology for the mother and baby homes, though it was already clear that the, the commission had been an unusual sort of failure of this kind of process, he kind of mournfully suggested that the report was supposed to be a definitive history. There would be no more need almost for histories of the mother and baby homes. This report would draw a very neat boundary between past and present. And in other work, which I won't go into here, but work with um, Sinead Ring, a work I've done on some physiotomy, um, we've shown that that uh, categorization of injustices as historical has certain legal consequences. So historical injustices, for example, are channeled away from the courts into redress schemes. They're dealt with by particular reports rather than by court cases and so on. They don't get um, individual adjudication. They don't get the kind of public hearing that perhaps you might get in the courts. And when I say that, some of you might think, for example, of the cervical check uh, scandal and some women's um, insistence on not using alternative mechanisms because they prefer um, the traditional judicial system and so on. The other thing about this periodization, calling these injustices uh, historical, is that some people would say that definition or that, that hiving off um, can produce a, a temporal injustice because there's a clash between the state's insistence on periodization and the survivor's experience. And there's a huge literature on that in you know, the transitional justice literature that, that people who have been affected by particular harms continue to live with them in the every day, that there are there is evidence both of continuing harm and on the you know in other areas of social activity, continuing benefit from past unjust enrichment, and that the state's desire to move on, move on urgently, finally and quickly, is not always shared by those who are most affected. So um, the, some of the kind of literature on temporality and justice talks about um, the state's insistence that time must pass while survivors are living with a time that is irrevocable, that they can't get rid of, that they are continuing um, to live with. And that is borne out by um, you know, campaigners in organisations like the Adoption Rights Alliance, the Clan Project, um, the various testimonies that were heard in the Doyle in the last couple of weeks from people associated, for example, with Besborough, that people still live with the consequences of things that happened decades ago. So the fact that this history is designated by the state as history at all, especially things that happened in the 70s, 80s and 90s, that designation has a juridical purpose and that designation fulfills certain legal imperatives related to, you know, how the courts or alternative dispute resolution mechanisms will be used. Now, the three commissioners of, the, of this commission were two academics and a judge, and academics are established a 
interests in these kinds of processes, albeit they are involved in different ways. So academic historians were involved in all of you know, the, the engagement with synthesiotomy, the engagement with the Magdalene laundries, the engagement with the industrial schools in, in different ways. Um, and historians have all acted as expert witnesses for the state in, in some of the few court cases we've had related to historical injustice. So if I had more time, by which I mean a lecture course, not a seminar, um, we could talk about what Rose Parfit calls a legal historiographical machine. There is a, 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 a of structures that are used and reused and refined in relation to historical injustice and academic historians are part of that. Not all, a hashtag not all academic historians, right, so some historians are not given that authority to write or be cited, so think about for example um, the treatment of people like Catherine Corliss or the historians who work with um, Justice for Magdalene's research, whose, um, whose research and in particular whose, whose activist research or, or research which is engaged in advocacy is not invited into this space and is not um, given that kind of state um, imprimatur. So it's not unusual or new to point to the fact that academic historians have been involved in actively producing and contributing to, even if not directly authoring, this quasi-legal framework. So findings of historical fact, which uh, are, appear in these official reports, go on to inform, for example, recommendations for redress, the Oireachtas or government perspective on policy priorities, and often those reports, this happened with synthesiotomy, for example, are used in later court cases, which directly determine individual liability. They may be used in settlement negotiations. For example, uh, the minister is meeting GlaxoSmithKline apparently this week to discuss their contribution to a redress scheme. So I say agency rather than authorship. We don't know who wrote what bits of the Mother and Baby Homes Commission uh, report. I'm mindful, for example, of uh, some of what's been said around the Reynolds inquiry into illegal adoption, where there's questions about whether researchers' integrity is respected in the final uh, published version of these reports and so on. Uh, we don't know about uh, the editorial role of the chair, the civil service, the government's legal advisors and so on. So I'm very deliberately not saying authorship, but I am saying agency, participation in the production of um, these legal um, artefacts. Now, there is a big literature, which I'm not going to get into, but we can talk about in the Q&A, about the responsibilities which academic historians have if they choose to participate in production of official history within this kind of juridical mode. And there are, you know, the, the kinds of concerns depend on the political or academic commitments or heritage of the individual um, historian. But it is worth saying, just as an aside, that it's important to remember that this report, this commission is not a trial. So many of the concerns that come up in that literature um, don't appear in the same way here. So for example, uh, a, a, a commission is not expected to attribute individual guilt or innocence for harm. Um, the terms of reference for this commission strongly steer towards looking at structural and systemic failures rather than individual uh, failures. There is no final judgment. Um, this commission uh, did not um, uh, you know, it, 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 it did not itself decide to adopt external legal standards, for example, a human rights-based approach. Um, historians are often concerned 
files because they move quite quickly, they're quite urgent. That doesn't seem to have been a concern here. The commission was extended uh, several times. It had unspent budget, which it could have used if it had needed it. There was no public spectacle, no public moment. Uh, the commissioners uh, declined to appear before the Oireachtas when they were asked to do so. So many of the kinds of um, pressures which turn around historians' concern that your research will be bent to fit the demands of the law don't really apply here in the same way. And the Commission was clearly, um, or at least from the Minister's perspective and from his statements, the Commission guarded its independence very carefully. Um, that said, it's important to point out that there's no, unlike the Northern Ireland report, which came out shortly after uh, this one, there's no methodology section that might set out the Commission's working theory of its responsibility to with history in a juridical context. There's uh, maybe what Hannah Fransky calls a latent theory, maybe there's suggestions about a research culture, but these are scattered throughout the report. They're not uh, set out in any section. There are a few clues. Um, on one of the page twos, uh, because the, the pagination very strange in the report, but on one page two, in bold letters framed in black, um, is the statement that the Commission must look at all the available evidence and reach conclusions based on that evidence. It must be objective, rigorous and thorough. The conclusions it reaches may not always accord with the prevailing narrative. So you could read that as a kind of assertion of authority, uh, that this is a, a commission which is dealing in history, not in memory, for example. Um, and certainly that kind of statement maybe hides some of the inevitably, I think many historians would say, partial and provisional, provisional nature of even very careful um, historical findings. Um, so there are some clues, but there's no statement of how the commission engaged with, you know, these very but you know, by, if you look at the, the Northern Ireland report, it, it, it illustrates this very clearly, some of the very difficult methodological issues that can arise in an investigation of this kind. So um, I said I would talk about adoption and how this report tells the legal history of adoption. And I'm just going to flag some things that, again, we can discuss um, in the in, in the Q&A. First thing is that um, the story of adoption is told across this large report in very fragmented ways. The main discussion of adoption laws in chapter 32, but of course there are also testimonies, individual testimonies, which are some of which are contained in the separate confidential committee section, uh, some of which are scattered across the individual institutional reports. So some, some testimonies, as some of you will be aware, were submitted as affidavits and they were included in the institutional reports, which form the main body of the report, but most individual testimonies are included in the confidential committee as section. And in, by contrast with the Northern Ireland report, they are fragments, they are quotations rather than uh, longer, longer narratives. Chapter 32, in terms of the uh, commission's findings, seems to be the controlling version. So the one that is rooted in legislative history and judicial precedent is the controlling story of adoption law, not the story, perhaps scattered and embedded elsewhere in the report, which is about personal experience of that law. Um, even though, I mean, and this is a, a methodological decision, or there's a methodological commitment here anyway, um, there's no attempt to match those two things up. So the statement of what the law was at different times in chapter 32 is nowhere directly tested against 
the experiences stated elsewhere in the report. And the closest chapter 32 comes to that is talking about judgments, judgments of the High Court and the Supreme Court, which may be important as formal statements of the law, but would not necessarily reflect the everyday experience of the many thousands of women whose cases could never have come to a court at that level. Um, so this is, you know, very traditional legal writing. And it has the effect not only of refusing to produce that friction between authority and experience, but also it tends to lead to a very broad and essentializing account of experience. So we don't talk really about any individual mother. We talk about mothers as a category, for instance. Um, and so that lends a kind of air of unreality to some of the report's analyses. For example, many people noted that the report emphasised the responsibility of natural fathers. And so the law related to natural fathers is laid out. Um, but for example, if you're going to say something like natural fathers should have taken their responsibilities on board and married the women uh, who were pregnant with their children, um, then you are not <laughs> taking account of the impossibility of that demand, which is essentially in many cases a demand for forced marriage. And we know that from some of Law's other archives, for instance, the old judgments on the law of nullity. Um, this internal analysis of adoption law emphasising legislation and precedent all the time also carries with it a distinction between law and non-law. So, for instance, there is discussion of canon law, the law of the church, and it is, you know, the ways in which canon law informs the content of adoption law are discussed. But canon law is informing the law. Canon law is not law of its own. There is an alternative reading which would say that before 1952, canon law was the effective law of adoption in Ireland in the absence of any state law. And then you might have an interesting legal historical question about what happened post formal legalisation and whether there were clashes and moments of friction between two essentially competing authoritative legal systems, particularly in a context where um, births and adoptions were being arranged in a, a, a largely religious um, context. And there's the question of how the harm is defined. So the emphasis is on consent, consent, force, pressure at the moment of formal agreement, signature of forms and so on. Uh, when perhaps a, a more feminist approach to the legal history would consider the accumulation of pressures leading to the moment of surrendering a child, economic, social, religious and so on. The location of adoption within a system of separation and loss, which also included boarding out, economic exploitation, neglect of women and children, avoidable death, effective punishment of women who were pregnant through what was legally considered sexual assault and broader denial of reproductive autonomy. So consent is formal transactional consent, not a broader uh, sense of autonomy, uh, self-determination in family decision making. Uh, the focus on consent rather than separation um, is important. Historians will, some historians at least, will see in that emphasis on consent, the connection to a kind of idea of voluntarism, that oppression is less important if we can say that people who were oppressed readily agreed to or participated in their own uh, oppression or in the harms that they suffered. And there are also some interesting uh, double standards around consent and legality. So women have this agency, women have this capacity to consent when they're going in the direction determined by law, 
but illegality is generally excused unless there was evidence of state prosecution. So for instance, evidence of falsified records is underexplored, is explained away as presumed to have been well-intentioned. Commercial adoption is uh, reframed as non-commercial adoption, which was accompanied by donation. And that lack of attention to illegality, disobedience, transgression, suggests that the uh, adoption system, the system of adoption law, is generally coherent. But if we were to play a little bit more with illegality, it might start to look, um, it might start to look somewhat, somewhat different. Um, there's also, I suppose, uh, in general, a sense of law as progressive and as driven to attaining the common good. So I talked earlier about um, the emphasis on the legal chronology, one act to another, the law eventually leads to something better regulated uh, in keeping with better uh, living in the institutions in the 1980s and 1990s. The uh, report assumes that adoption is always an unalloyed good, even though we know that many people were adopted into families where they were not treated well because the adoption system was not adequately regulated. And there are some interesting and longer passages in um, the report where William Duncan himself, a commissioner, and um, where his involvement in critiquing the adoption law in the 1970s is set out in great detail. And that has, has, has two effects. First of all, it presents a commissioner as an agent of attempted positive change, but also there's a kind of intertemporal work there, right, to borrow a, a phrase from, from international law. We're given evidence of the seeds of the progress that was yet to come in the debates of the past. So those kinds of themes are present, in my view, throughout the report, but they're particularly present in the discussion of adoption. And so why are they a problem, you know, from a perspective, from a sort of critical or feminist perspective on legal history, historical injustice? One of the sort of major critiques of transitional justice as an idea um, is that it's quite ordinary for transitional justice projects or processes to address past harm from within the present existing juridical political order. Now, that's not true of, of all of them. That's certainly, I mean, it's, it would be difficult even to call what's happened in Ireland a transitional justice or traditional transitional justice process because it doesn't suggest that anything needs to change. It suggests that the harm was done quite a long time ago and that we have since built um, a fair and just legal order, which is adequate to this new task of delving into our history. Um, Fran Hannah Fransky quoting Marcuse kind of says, this is the violence of the status quo. The purpose of the historical injustice engagement, its main purpose comes to be to reauthorize or authorize the society that we have now. We don't question the law's adequacy. We don't change it very much. We don't ask about law's own engagement with violence. Um, law is not traumatized or inadequate or broken by its history. Nothing happened in the past that is illegible to today's law or that is not amenable to law's discipline. But there, and I'll make these very brief, there are three very basic things that we could say about how this report tells the legal history um, of adoption. First of all, it's really obvious from particularly the personal testimonies of the operation of the adoption law that the law on consent was part of experience of violence within the adoption system. 
the idea of consent as um, basic choice, which can be exercised no matter what the social or economic pressure you might have been under might be. That consent is a fiction. Feminist legal scholars recognize that as a fiction, which is rooted in a very narrow masculinist sense of legal personhood. The point of having such a minimalist, paper-based notion of consent was to facilitate exploitation. Anything more substantive would have made it more difficult to transfer children from one family unit to another. And so the wider adoption law was complicit in, rather than merely being influenced by, a gendered order of power. When you look at individual testimony, it's clear that the experience of coerced adoption was violent because law was there, not because law was absent. Women talk about the role of solicitors, judges. Solicitors never have names, but their offices are places where to which women are sent. Their offices are selected by the nuns. The solicitors do not help or do not explain the paper that is being signed. The solicitors look on as physical and emotional violence is applied to women. When women remember the moment of violence, they remember at least often in these testimonies the presence of legal ritual, paper, signature, being told where to sign, being threatened if they didn't. So that's the first thing. And if we take that into account, that law was bound up in the violence that we're supposed to be and adjudicating upon, then trying to rediscover past legal standards in order to evaluate past violence is not a passive act. Right. Um, and if we even by using like consent, you know, Christopher Tomlins talks about laws, ontology of equivalence. It's not quite clear to me how we can assume that consent in adoption today is the same thing as consent in adoption uh, in adoption in the past without engaging in some further um, critique. So there's something going on here. You know, Stuart Motha says when we try to dig out these past standards, what law is doing is reinscribing the facts of its own existence without examining whether the injury might demonstrate that those facts were never true. So we go looking for consent and we find consent in the text of law and that stops us from asking whether that consent was real or whether that consent was a cover for violence. The second issue, and this is much briefer, is that idea about law's progress. It is very interesting to me that chapter 32 spends so little time on the period pre-1952, and also that it skims very briefly over a crucial amendment to the adoption law in the 1970s, which reduced uh, the amount of time that you needed to wait before an adoption could be finalised and retrospectively validated um, older adoptions, precisely because concerns were being articulated in the courts that women were not consenting to adoption. So in this period, the 1970s, when things are supposed to be getting better, um, the law locks down this violent model of consent. If the report spent more time on that, we would start to move away from this model of law as a kind of neutral standard for evaluation. Um, and I've started finished uh, digging into some of the parliamentary debates around that uh, um, amendment. And it's very clear to me that there was a moral panic, a very serious moral panic, um, about the idea that these you know, birth mothers were going to come back and recover their children from morally upstanding uh, preferred marital families. And that isn't really unpacked in the report because the report in its introduction says that it is not going to criticise um, parents who became parents 
uh, through adoption, nor would I, of course, but it's important to unpack the, the politics here. The last thing, just because I said I'd mention it, is, you know, how would we correct that way of doing legal history? How would we move, how would we uncover laws violence and how would we disrupt notions of laws, you know, infinite progress towards human betterment? And one, you know, historical tool is to ask the people who were there and who remember, right? But we know, and this is one of the big complaints about uh, the commission, that law was used to very carefully um, shepherd and decommission uh, the risks associated with that oral testimony. As with the broader question of methodology, the report doesn't really tell us um, what legal standards it has applied. Um, my guess would be that the, based on it, its published procedures, which are quite vague, but my guess would be that it was very heavily influenced by the Commission and also by some of the concerns about the, the length of time and the amount of money that the Rhine Commission purportedly you know, cost the state. Um, I think a couple of things, you know, and others will know better than I did, but a couple of things happened in relation to um, in relation to oral evidence. So first, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the Commission relies very heavily on written evidence. And that means, of course, the kinds of legal texts which are parsed in Chapter 32, but also some of the records that the adoption and family separation system uh, produced. It is important, you know, if you think about Karen Knopf and, and Annalise Ryle's work on sequencing in traditional justice, the order in which things happen, it is crucial that the Commission got people's records before affected people got them themselves in many cases. Um, the debate about access to records cannot really be separated from the, this debate about how legal history is manufactured. Um, and some of the judicial reviews that are being brought in relation to the report make this point that people's reputations, people's right to private life and so on, were at stake in the operations of this commission, but they did not themselves get to see the records that the commission was using to evaluate their testimony to their experience. So one is that question of who gets access and how. Um, another is the question of how um, oral testimony was eventually uh, presented in this very fragmented way. People complain of inaccuracies. Most of the testimony is hived off into one section of the report it's displaced from the main analysis. The excerpts that are produced are um, tend to emphasize effects rather than cause, so tend to emphasize you know, heartbreak, uh, separation, injury without replacing those, those heartbreak, separations and in, injuries back to, um, back to the state at least. Um, all of that is, is important, but what's maybe troubling I suppose, is, is that hierarchy that the Commission's report gives the impression that it considered that maybe it could have done without oral evidence or that oral evidence and testimony were, were there as part of the therapeutic process for people who chose to engage with it, but not necessarily part of the process of creating the knowledge undergirding this official history. And historians know and legal scholars know that it is not possible to rely neutrally or innocently on records created by the legal system. And, um, you know, we might think of uh, Cornelia Wissman's work 
on, on legal records, uh, which emphasize that legal records are not artifacts which, op which, which offer up truth. They are the products of particular legal processes. And they have been created for a particular purpose and in a particular context. And the historian Carolyn Steedman uh, has a, a lovely new book uh, in which she describes legal records as fiction, right? So, you know, they are not necessarily telling you what happened to a person at a particular time. They're telling you what, how a legal system uh, recorded and adjudicated upon that happening. Um, and Laura Stoller points out uh, that within archives, particularly, you know, she's working on colonial archives, what is not said is as important as what is said, right? So there are some things that don't need to be said because they're common sense at the time. There are some things that are not written down because they are unsayable at the time within the morality or knowledge systems of the time. And some things are destroyed, some things are lost. If we look at the report into um, you know, the illegal adoption records, the, the, the issue that Conor O'Mahony is going to be working on, I mean, that report is so interesting because so much of it turned on interpreting markers, what were called markers, on individual records and, and the difficulty of interpreting um, those markers because we don't understand why they were produced really or what words were used to donate what things or why or in what context. Bringing all of that analysis together, the key point is that the records can't tell you very much if you don't understand the social system within which they were produced. And so, as Moani says, there is a double violence that goes on here. If you think about something like a record of an adoption that took place in Ireland in 1965, there are two violences. The record is intended to legitimate the violence of the coerced or illegal adoption. And then the state relies on that record again when you come to seek justice from it. Now, none of these, you know, and none of that literature is inaccessible or brand new or terribly complex. There is a key point about method here, that if we recognise that law is connected to violence, then we have to be suspicious of the records that law created in the course of doing that violence. So what's the conclusion? Um, I don't have a conclusion. I think it's too early to come to a conclusion and I welcome everyone's comments and there's lots of stuff could have said that I, that I didn't say. But I suppose what I wanted to kind of insert into the ongoing discussion about this commission and its related processes is that it is important to engage as honestly as possible with the kinds of power that are deployed in creating um, reports of this kind. Um, and maybe to flag, to flag some of the places in which this report could have been done otherwise. At the moment, I'm starting to kind of edge towards the conclusion that reports like this, and certainly this report, should not have been done at all. Um, but I don't think it's possible at the moment to come to a conclusion without paying very close attention to the multiple ways in which this report is being contested as we speak, uh, not only in this judicial review, but in things like you know, the recent performance of alternative and full and accepted testimonies at the Abbey Theatre, um, what's going on in Besborough at the moment, and so on. So I don't, I don't want to conclude by saying this was a, a terrible report and there's nothing we can do about it. The contestation is ongoing. What is regrettable was that that contestation wasn't anticipated and embraced from the beginning and throughout the process of creating the report. And I suppose that's maybe what we could talk about and what we could learn from. So thank you for your attention and I'll, 
whole botnet now. Uh, terrific. Um, that was so rich. Thank you, Marie. Really wonderful. Um, and we're all listening in rapt attention there. Um, I'm going to invite the um, audience to um, either put your hand up or to drop a question in the in the chat box. Um, people tend to take a minute. Marie, just while people are gathering their uh, thoughts there, um, if, if I could just trouble you, maybe just for a brief update about that uh, the judicial review. Mm. Maybe you can say a little bit about that. Yeah, um, let me see, what can I say? Uh, I mean, the basics, I think, have been the papers, but there's five five cases. Um, one is Philomena Lee, um, one is uh, Mary Harney, one is Mary Steed, and then two others who haven't haven't been named in the media. Um, and the, so the basic point is that, so this commission, uh, was run, shall we say, under the 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act, and there is a provision in Section 34, and now this is a direct quote, but this is a general idea, that if you are identifiable from the text of the report, that you ought to get to see a draft of it so that you can respond to it. And I assume, um, others will know better than I do, evidence law frightens me, but I would assume that the point is that um, you have certain constitutional rights set out in Ray Hawhey um, to the protection of your good name. And so you should at the very least get to see what's going to be said about you so that you can respond to it or ask for a correction and so on. And I think, you know, we talk about law and we talk about kind of cultures of cultures of legality. I think the assumption was that Section 34 was not for survivors or affected people, but was for people who might be named in connection to the perpetration of, of certain harms. But when we think about how that report was received and some of the things that it said, you know, this was, you know, for example, this was your family's fault, for instance, but it seemed to be one of the, the key themes. This was a general societal responsibility. Nobody is to blame. You did not lose your child through a forced adoption and so on. And um, some of the people who are bringing those judicial reviews are saying, I am identifiable from my testimony even you know fragmented butchered and so on as it is something has been said which about me which is which is not true and which has implications for others of my rights here are some of those statements right so my understanding is people are using section 34 to say well you know i should have gotten a copy so i could comment on it and then the court will say well why what does it have to do with you and then you can say well these are the statements that implicate my good name um and it's, yeah, I mean, Sinead Ring would be better on this than I am, right? The, the kind of contestation of this question of, you know, the threat of investigation, who it raises constitutional issues for and who is entitled to protection. So I think these are really interesting judicial reviews because, um, well, the main thing I think is they're using Section 34 in order not to have to wait the outcome of the report if that makes sense so you don't have so there have been other challenges to redress schemes successful and unsuccessful but this is an earlier strike because it's recognizing that to some extent the redress scheme will have been informed by the recommendations of this report which are in turn based on a certain kind of historical analysis if that makes sense so yeah i think i, I think that's uh, strategically um very, very interesting that's all I that's all I know about it and um, okay. for public purposes anyway yeah yeah thank you thanks for thanks for the update oh, thanks. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, the, the question's come in from Fiona Crowley. Uh, should there be a call on government for the report to be withdrawn? Yeah, I think I think that, you know, different people who are affected will have different views, right? And so one of the problems with trying to produce a definitive history is that the government can then, I think, sometimes profit from the fragmentation that results. Do you know? Um, and so I'm, I don't have like a one size fits all kind of political campaign. Uh, so people may wish to call for the withdrawal of the report. I think more broadly, the question of who and what withdraws is really interesting mm -hmm. at the moment. So there was some, I'm not sure where, I'm not sure where this one is going now, others may know, but in relation to St. Patrick's Guild, the adoption agency, and some people may know that there's an attempt to wind St. Patrick's Guild up. And so they haven't really contested that litigation as they might have done. It's interesting to me, and more broadly, it's interesting to me that religious orders um, close down their archives in particular ways, wind up their operations, withdraw from the public sphere, say that if they participate in public discussion about this history, they, they will be condemned or not be believed anyway. So that kind of refusal to participate is very, very interesting to me. Um, I'm more like in terms of my preference, right? And when I say preference, I don't mean what I think is the best thing to do or what's the most authoritative. I mean, like what I think is interesting and what kind of grabs my attention. I thought the performance at the Abbey um, created by Noel Brown and others, I thought that was incredible because it was an attempt at pluralization and replacement and demonstration so what they were doing was saying, here are some people who did testify to the commission who are dissatisfied with the way in which their testimony was produced. Here's the real thing. And here it is um, in the context of performance, art, available for free, street live streaming and so on. And done very quickly, but done because it had to be, but done very authentically. So I think contesting it in that sense of saying well here here's an alternative is very interesting mm -hmm. i think good history can do that though you know and so the question is why can't the state create space for good history like there's no there's no reason why the processes that the state runs have to be so constrained and so um so bound to you know bad <laughs> visions of law you know, um, so I mean, demanding it. Yeah, OK, maybe. OK, fine. Maybe, no, I don't think it should be withdrawn because or with other demands as well, because if you're saying withdraw it and do it again, you're accepting the basic premise that it's the state's job to make these histories. But if you say withdraw it and let families have access to their own records and fund community engagements and 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 towards a pluralization, then maybe that's more productive. But like correct your homework and do it again has its own uh, limitations, I think. Thank you. Um, Yvonne McDermott would like to ask a question. Yvonne, I'll invite you to turn on your mic and your camera. Sorry, hi. Um, sorry. I'm, I'm in the blankets because it's very cold. Very well. um, Maria, this is fantastic. Um, just really, really interesting research. And I thought your presentation was so rich in detail and in the sort of the, the 
I guess the scholarly background to it too is yeah I've, I've taken down loads of references that I'm going to go off and read but um I had a question and I, you're not going to like this because it's about evidence <laughs> um, but it seemed to me I haven't read the report but it seemed that there was a an approach taken that was a bit like the corroboration um rule in Scottish Scottish mm. law which is that you know one the testimony of one person can be used to um as the basis for a finding um it seemed to me from some secondary accounts that that was kind of the approach taken at least in part um in the report that they said well all we had was one person who said that this is what happens we can't draw mm. any findings on that basis is that your uh, impression as well no yeah i i honestly don't know and i'm not i'm not trying to be smart i have we i, I tried a bunch of other lawyers who are working on responding to the report actually have tried to pin down what the in legal terms what standard of proof was used in order to come to a conclusion that something happened or did not happen and cannot figure it out um i think the most the most influential sort of evidentiary policy or whatever in the context of this report is that distinction between written and oral so i think um the the decision to structure the evidence process so that most people who who understood themselves to be testifying to the committee were testifying to the confidential committee rather than making what was considered a testable statement you know like a written sworn affidavit or appearing in a pub in, not a public hearing but a a hearing where they where they could be asked um questions that that's the most significant because what that does, i think is it limits the the use of that evidence now other processes do something similar so the child sex abuse inquiry here has that like has a confidential committee that will not produce evidence to inform the analysis but it also has a well advertised and accessible alternative where you can give your testimony understanding that it will be tested in order to inform the analysis um, so i think that's the most influential thing that's happening um yeah i don't know and i mean the the this the, the thing that's worrying is that, you know, there are, and people who work in transitional justice will know better than I do, because I'm at, I'm at the start of this kind of question of, you know, truth and testing truth and so on. But there are other ways to engage with that testimony. So, you know, you could take a position of saying, what the, we accept that these things happened, we accept that they were wrong. Um, we don't need to know how many people they happened to as such. We know that they were prevalent to a certain degree and the function of the commission is to witness people's testimony of or to those wrongs uh, rather than to to test it um i think yeah i think before we have any more commissions like this i'm not sure we should but that there does need to be a very serious piece of work done to clarify what's what standards are considered to be politically and legally necessary in this context um so i don't know what i have been conversations with other people about about corroboration and prevalence and numbers and prioritizing or you know prioritizing written written evidence and so on and we haven't come to a clear conclusion 
I'm so, so yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have a, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not pretending that I just don't know. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Yvonne. And uh, lovely that you were able to join us from Wales. Um, uh, Mary McAuliffe has her hand up. She'd like to ask something. Hi, Marie. That, that was fabulous and um, and just so much food for thought there. Um, but I felt I, I, I needed to uh, come on and, and uh, in defense of academic historians. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I, there, a lot of us have been talking about the, the uh, way the history was treated within the Mother and Baby Home Report. And a couple of things that have been curious to me, I suppose, has been the fact that um, None of the researchers nor the the principal historian were um, gender experts, gender history experts, nor was any oral history expert taken on board. And there are so many methodologies within and theory, theoretical frameworks that could have been used from those uh, sub-disciplines of the discipline of history that would have um, better, I think, integrated both the archival evidence and the testimonies and measured them against each other, uh, you know, in the way that we're trained to do very much so within uh, gender history and, and oral history. Um, I don't know why that didn't happen. And a lot of us, maybe it's a generational thing, maybe it's a gender thing, I don't know. Uh, but a lot of us have been discussing this. And I think the question you said about we have to consider historians, legal scholars, whoever, academics who are asked to undertake inquiries like this. How do we position ourselves? How do we discuss our own positionality in relation to working for the government, basically working mm -hmm. for the man? Um, and is there a particular type of academic that is, is asked to do this work? Uh, and a particular type of academic who isn't asked to do this work. Um, and I think that's something that will be very important going forward in, in any of other inquiries or if they revisit um, some of these inquiries. I think there was the same issue came up with the McAleese report. Um, I don't know as much about the Ryan uh, Commission, but I would imagine there were those difficulties as well. Um, but there are over the last decade or more, particularly as, as say oral history has become more professionalized within Irish historical studies um, and as gender history has been embedded in that, there was no there was no there was no real excuse here really for why mm. this happened, um, mm. which is a pity because there's so much of value in the report itself, i.e. The, the actual archival evidence and uh, access to archives that I can't get access to or other people mm. like myself who would be interested can't get access to uh, and this is the report we have and that we're going to have to work with on into the future but it's mm. so problematic is how do you then use that to write uh, or to be an activist you know to use it as an academic activist even on into the future but mm. um, I think yeah you've you've started me thinking in different ways about it and, and thanks again Basically, that's, yeah. that's all I wanted to say was hashtag not all academic hashtag historians. Hashtag not all academic historians. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think I tried to say that at the beginning and maybe it didn't, didn't come out the right way. Um, I think, so, right, so there's a few things going on. Um, one is, one is it's a particular kind of legal culture that is determining 
the way I, I think that was the final point I tried to make and maybe I should rephrase it. It is the, you know, I'm oh, sorry, you know, Benjamin's kind of idea of law preserving violence, right? That the, one of the purposes of these commissions is to keep a certain kind of status quo in place, I think. Whether that is an acknowledged purpose or not, but I think it, from what we know of these processes, it probably is. And because this commission has not been transparent about its methodology or has not been permitted to be critical of dimensions of state methodology that were imposed upon it, we don't know how those tensions between, for example, a particular attitude to oral history and a particular attitude to testimony within a narrow kind of constitutional framework, we don't know how those played off against each other. I think it would be possible for lawyers and historians to use this report as an artifact and unpack it and have discussions about how it could be done differently and kind of yeah look for the evidence that is in it to kind of suggest how we might do how we might do something else there is a small group of lawyers who are uh sorry so catherine mentioned the feminist judgments project a small group of us are rewriting the findings the executive summary of the report and um, which goes against what i said about like legitimating these processes by pretending they can be done better but we are rewriting the executive summary to show that even by the legal standards of the time many of the things that people experienced were considered legal wrongs um, and by doing that we want to just as lawyers have a conversation about methodology and i think that that kind of work so refusing to treat the report as definitive treating it as a continuation of a certain kind of violence and analyzing it as such could be productive um yeah no and i think I'm, on the question of like why gender historians aren't asked to do this kind of work i don't know how those selections are made uh, because of course in relation to symphysiotomy um the walsh report was written by somebody who was a a historian of, of, of gender and medicine. Um, I think partly it's a suspicion around advocacy, um, which also comes up in also comes up in the selection of lawyers who sit on particular commissions and bodies. If you um, take the position that these are established wrongs, you are perceived to have set your neutrality aside. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that is more obviously taken into account in the Republic than perhaps in the North. I thought it was interesting, for for instance, that the, the job of producing the initial research report for the for, for Northern Ireland and its approach to the mother and baby homes in Magdalen Laundries, that, that was put out to competitive tender, as I understand it. Now, I'm not saying neoliberalism will save us all, but that, you know, at least the process of selection was was transparent. And then the ethos of that project is very clear. You know, that project, for example, engages with critiques processes like it is transparent about difficulties in accessing archives and engaging with um affected people's organizations and so on so yeah i think i think lawyers and historians in ireland should be getting together to take this thing apart not necessarily in a an exclusively hostile way because i think you're right some parts of it are very helpful but treating it as what it is refusing to treat it as a definitive history and analyzing it differently that's all Brilliant, thank you. We've had quite a few um, hands and questions oh, sorry, come yeah. in, right? So, 
Um, so just, uh, I'm going to invite Claire Wills to ask her question. I, thank you so much for, for that brilliant paper. Um, I, I'm commenting on evidence, not as a lawyer or as a historian, but as, as a reader. Um, I have read the report. And one of the things that I was struck by was the fact that oral evidence is considered legitimate in certain contexts. For example, journalists who are interviewing people in the early 60s, the oral ev evidence that um, people who have be recently been in the homes uh, that is presented in, in kind of uh, women's magazines is okay somehow because it is printed. So I think there's something very puzzling going on about what constitutes documentary evidence. It's almost as though anything that has been printed uh, is the same kind of documentary evidence, even if it is oral evidence. And then the question is, why is the confidential committee evidence, which is also not considered that kind of oral evidence? Um, the, the second puzzle I had around that was the um, oral evidence when people say my parents wouldn't have me back tends to be um, accepted and again this seems to be a question of numbers you know the, 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 the people who experience their families as um, unwelcoming or unhelpful that is in general, I think, not questioned in the way that, say, you know, having to uh, um, an experience inside the home is questioned unless there is uh, corroborating evidence. And I mean, I, I, I found a great deal of value in the reports, but like, like you, I was kind of appalled by particularly the kind of uh, interpretation of some of that legal history. But I have a worry, and I suppose this is my question. Do you share my concern that unpacking the problems with the report may also lead us not to give enough weight to something I think is valuable in the report around collective responsibility and family responsibility? I, I worry that if we say, well, the law, the homes, the sisters, the structures uh, were the, the, the source of, of it all, that precisely that story about families and communities can be too easily um, uh, washed over. I'm sorry for the inarticulacy of this comment. No, that's, that's perfect. Um, so, I think that's just as an aside, I think that's a brilliant point about, uh, you know, if if oral history is produced by the woman's way, suddenly it's not oral history. And I, I'm sure some of the historians in the room would be able to guide me on that as well. That, I think that's that's very, very interesting. Um, I don't think that. I don't think that by unpacking this report, we run the risk of dropping a meaningful sense of collective responsibility. I think we need to. And this is part of what I'm trying to do is think about whether reports like this provide a meaningful route into collective and family responsibility. And I'm not sure that they do. 
And I think that happens for a number of different reasons. Um, I think certain parts of the collective, like the lawyers and the judges, um, are not asked to account for um, their profession's engagement in past abuse, for example, in the same way that mothers and fathers are. I think that kind of collective responsibility was articulated in the report and um, missed something, which is, first of all, that wasn't necessarily how everyone who testified to the commission, that wasn't where they were placing their emphasis. They didn't go to the commission to be angry at their parents. Some people did, but not everybody did. And the nuance of that demand doesn't come out um, in the report. And I also think it's too broad, right? mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters were responsible, you know, that's fine, but that's also happening in a context where, um, you know, secrecy around pregnancy, illegal adoption, all kinds of illegal or non-legal family solutions are not dealt with. So, you know, I, I, I might read that report and think people's fathers, people's mothers, but that doesn't tell me very much beyond the little I know about my grandfathers, my grandmothers, my parents, right? So I think I think the kind of abstract and unengageable uh, history that it is offering to us is not actually terribly helpful. I'm not sure it's done a very good job of providing us with a path towards responsibility or engagement or reconciliation, whatever you think this process one thinks this process is going and that's partly why the point about sequencing is important you know if people who have been looking for their records or needing to come to terms with their own aspects of their own story had been enabled to do so before the state came along we might have a different process the other thing i'd say is that collective responsibility is being articulated in other places in other ways um albeit in heavily contested ways there are some examples of, for instance, some kinds of community activism in Chum, or some of the protests by people living in Cork against the redevelopment of Besborough. There are actions at a community level, which are, you know, organ people, survivor organisations who are denigrated as, as unreliable in the report and as tainting people's evidence. They've been very important to articulating responsibility and enabling different kinds of political empowerment. So, yeah, I'm not looking to reports like this to tell us about collective responsibility. I think it has done more kind of defer the coming of that responsibility than it does enable it. Um, and certainly the public backlash when, you know, when the headline of the report was society was responsible, suggested that the way in which the report was presented had done more damage. Than, than good, I think. So, I mean, I do believe in collective responsibility and in and in the power of family histories. I do. But I'm just not sure that this report was the way to it, and I'm not sure that rejecting the so rejecting the report isn't rejecting that. It's asking for something more complex, I think. But that was a great question, and thank you. That was a brilliant answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so we have. Um... Sinead Gibney uh, is next in line. I'm trying to take these in strict rotation. Uh, but Sorry, I can't everybody. see how many questions, Catherine, I can't see how many questions there are, but if, if you want to take like two or three in a row or something, if that okay. helps. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, 
Well, let, let's have Sinead um, ask a okay. question and then, yeah. and then I can try and run a few together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks many, Catherine, and thank you, Mairead, for a really wonderful presentation and, and great discussion uh, that we're having here now. Um, I'm really interested in the comments you made around um, and your thoughts around this, the, the state um, interpretation, the legal interpretation and the use of that to inform the running of this particular commission of investigation. And I'm curious if you can connect that to the and, and, and apologies if, I, if I'm drawing you away from your own area of expertise, but I suppose where else do we see those symptoms, if you like? Uh, and, and I'm wondering if there, if, you know, I suppose to be specific, other examples around the limitations of perhaps the, the um, inquest process, um, um, you know, any other investigative processes in the state that are also falling foul of this particular interpretation and presentation of the law mm -hmm. to inform the investigative process and the state's obligations within it? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a great question. Um, so, my sense is, um, and I'm not the only person saying this, uh, lots of, in particular, lots of legal practitioners are saying this, as, as I'm sure you'll know, um, that the state's attitude to legal claims making by citizens, um, particularly as embodied in the state agency, is deeply problematic. Um, if you look at the annual reports of the state claims agency, you'll notice that if you leave out healthcare, um, it's a lot of what is on its books are what, what are called mass torts. And many of those are historical. So there are things like some physiotomy and the O'Keefe National Schools abuses cases, cases related to Magdalene Laundries, industrial schools, mother and baby homes and so on. Um, but others are more contemporary. So they include things like prison slapping out, um, some education cases related to uh, disabled children, um, and of course cervical check, right, the, the cases relating, relating to the cervical check scandal. And I do see commonalities in treatment and experience across those groups. Now, I'm interested, of course, in, in gender, women's rights, action broadly conceived, but I do see very clear connections in how, let's say, women who took the state to court because of cervical check talk about how they were treated, their resonances um, with, for example, the few women who tried to litigate some physiotomy cases, how they talk about how they were treated. Um, so I think, um, however, because of the numbers involved, because of their age, because of discourses around public sympathy and vulnerability, my hunch is that historical injustice cases are used as a kind of a laboratory for trying out alternative dispute resolution mechanisms that might then be reintroduced into other social areas, but I'm, I can't be 100% about that. Um, yeah, I think, I think there is a broader question around, around the, just the risk that is in the risk that's associated with these kinds of mass torts that the state does not does not see them as you know opportunities for revisiting some of the violences associated with the legal system but sees them as opportunities for doubling down and reinforcement um, and i think that's a bigger question about about legal culture in ireland and i know that that's you know i mean i know that's the, that's the work that you're doing as well and and it's and it's deep frustrating um 
Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting, you know, and Maeve O'Rourke and others say this as well, you know, the historical injustice cases are fragmented down, even though they're connected, you know, so many people would have had experiences with multiple institutions and so on. The um, designation as historical probably also distracts from the fact that a lot of the experiences that people have are, exper are or experiences of legal power that aren't explicable only in terms of their past experiences. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a bigger puzzle I think we need to think about. But yeah, I do I do think this is a broader, a broader problem. Thanks, that's a good question. Thank you, Sinead. Um, I'm just uh, going to take a few of the questions from the, yeah. the chat function. Um, they're quite yeah. linked, actually, the, the three of them. Um, so the first one is from Brida Murphy. Uh, congratulations, Mairead. I really enjoyed your reflections as the government are promoting the idea that we quote unquote accept this deeply flawed document and in years to mm. come it will stand as a resource that blames members of my family or the child's father. Insult has been mm. added to injury and survivors and families require ongoing support to challenge. Personally, mm. I feel every contributor stroke author to the now largely criticised report should be named and statements without foundation stroke comments associated with them, which we find particularly upsetting. So, for example, the lack of evidence of forced adoption, the quote unquote contamination of survivor testimonies, etc. Lack of mm. access to the same documentation um, is utterly wrong. How can we truly effectively challenge the unsubstantiated statements that cause such distress without access to records, both from church and state? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't have a clever response to that. I think all of that is true. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of why um, the emphasis on access to like n not just early life information, so not just adoption records and so on, or records of a, a parent's medical treatment during pregnancy, those kinds of things, but also access to um, administrative, institutional administrative records is essential. Um, this is also why, you know, people like me, like Maeve, like James Gallen, Schneidering and others are always talking about um, the need to just archives which are in private ownership into effective public custody, the need for a national archival centre and so on. Um, it's dispiriting because the process of checking and undoing this work will take a very long time, but right that opening access to records in appropriate sensitive rights focused ways is the first is the first kind of step. At the same time, you know, the critique I was making of the report's reliance on legal records like applies to us as well as to them. You know, you find like, you know, like I was, I am currently looking for records related to uh, to a family member, a nun, I'm afraid, uh, unusually in our collection. Um, and I finally got this record and it told me almost nothing, you know, and I'll, I'll kind of never know the answer to the question I want to know the answer to because she's not there and the people who were, who knew her aren't there. So there's also, there's, there's a limitation as well a lot of what has to be done will just rely on um, oh, like Dias has that quote from Christina Buckley that Christina Buckley used to say to people, I believe you before you open your mouth. There has to be a kind of a, a reckoning with the incompletion of official records and official history. Like at some point, if we think, you know, we have enough evidence from people's experience to know that this happened. We know that it happened in our own families. We know that it happened in our own communities. And at some point that also has to be enough. So the records are essential, 
for particular purposes and with particular limits. But there also has to be a process of agreeing that, that, that we're happy to leave people. And that sounds really kind of innocent and non-legal, but that's where a lot of the scholarship goes, I think. Okay, so just mindful of time, um, I want to, Sorry, yeah. I'm going to give you um, three separate questions from the chat. Okay, I'll just they're, yeah. they're, yeah, yeah. they're all quite related, <laughs> so if you just bear with me, I'll, yeah. I'll give you the three. And then I do want to make sure we give time to Ian and Duffy to speak, who's, um, uh, who has his hand up for quite a while. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. No problem. Uh, so Julia Canney says, uh, thanks so much for all of this thoughtful insight, Mairead. We know that from the start, the remit of the Commission was extremely narrow, examining only 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes, where there were over 182 institutions routinely submitted to the Commission that should be in its remit. Um, this, this touches maybe a bit on Fiona's question, but knowing that the history included in the report was so selective already, and as you said, the history and records of all the institutions is so selective and specific to the times and laws in which it was recorded, would there ever have been a report that covered, could have covered all of the abuses? Okay, so that's question one. Number two from Frank Brehany. Uh, do you think there's an absence of political history, motives, agenda, either collectively or through individual politicians from this report or the wider narrative? Do you think this is an important factor which informs a wider understanding of the conditions that led to the violence that you've highlighted? Okay, and then question three um, from Carmel. Um, an observation about the report. Fathers were talked about in the report more in passing, but they didn't include a father's perspective. And I know fathers gave testimony. And I know that many girls went in, in the homes without their parents' knowledge, but the commission made sweeping statements about the parents and fathers. Okay, so uh, the selectivity of the report in terms of institutions. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I was yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so all, all, all three of those are valid. Maybe the, the first question first: Would there ever have been a report that could cover it all? Um, probably not. No. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to like contest or play with or whatever is to say, you know, maybe the ambition to have this kind of report and to have it do the things that the state wanted it to do was misplaced. And, you know, you know, Mary was talking about all of the alternative methods and ongoing projects in Ireland that are about engaging with grassroots memory. Um, perhaps they would have provided, and I think they would have provided a better model for, for state engagement. Um, I think that funding of smaller scale local projects is a better way to go to be honest i think the need so the state of course does have a responsibility to accurately tell its own history insofar as it can whether it can be comprehensive in the way that it pretends to be you know comprehensive definitive the report is there it's not going to be changed I really, I really think the, that no report could stand up to that demand and that indeed the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report collapsed under the weight of that demand almost within hours of publication. So that idea, the comprehensive report that was for all time, seems, seems to be a mistaken one. The other thing is, that, you know, no mass report can respond to the needs of individual affected people and individual survivors, right? And that's what people are saying, you know. And um, perhaps people would have responded differently to a report that spoke in generalities if their own questions had been attended to first. And so that's that question about sequencing. 
perhaps not. Like it depends, depends on the person. And um, the point about fathers, I think that's right. Um, and I think that 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 has come up a lot. Um, and the diversity of experiences. Um, you know, one of the things about this idea that the report was disclosing past standards, I thought the emphasis on fathers was a really good example of the necessary kind of impurity of those supposed past standards. You know, if we hadn't had this kind of neoliberal feminist awakening in Ireland in the last five years, like I got the impression that whoever wrote that was quite pleased with themselves. You know, the feminists love this, we hate men. Whereas, of course, that, that was not. And I think many survivor advocates have spoken really beautifully about that. Like, I remember um, being, being on a podcast with Rose Maria Dasser a few days after the report came back. And she spoke about the father of her child and she called him a beautiful man, right? And so that sense of the many different kinds of violence weren't that can't be distributed along a basic gender binary where all men are terrible and all women are, are wonderful. It's just too simplistic and it's clearly it clearly rejected in the same way as the emphasis, you know, where all parents were ogres was 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 rejected very quickly because it wasn't speaking to the complexity of people's experiences. And if there's one thing that the state could learn from survivor narratives, it's complexity, right? Not trying to hive things off into easy categories. And then the last question about the absence of attention to political history and individual politicians, agency, and so on. Um, I think that's important. I think part of the reason it hasn't happened is that there is an assumption that these processes of investigation will end in some kind of punishment or denigration or loss of reputation. And perhaps they should, uh, you know, um, I'm interested in, you know, more kind of abolitionist approaches to transitional justice, which kind of recognize that, you know, criminal models of criminalization can can do certain things in certain circumstances and not in others. Um, I'm not going down the route of amnesties or whatever, but I, I think the desire to protect reputation is part of what has kept that kind of information out of the out of the public sphere. And um, part of one of the things I'm trying to do is to write about judges, uh, to write about district and circuit court judges um, by name <laughs> and their involvement in the industrial school imagine laundry system. Uh, not because they were doing anything illegal, they weren't. Uh, not because I think they were monsters, they weren't. But they were administering a system that we now recognise as deeply harmful. And so this is also somewhere that historians can help, right? So that historians can talk about ethical ways of representing things that happened in the past that aren't necessarily um, too risky for the state to permit to happen. Well, look, I think that that has brought us um, to the end of our allotted time. Um, I think it just falls to me really to thank you, Maureen, for such a rich uh, contribution and to thank, and indeed to thank everyone for being such an attentive and uh, participative audience. The discussion was, was um, really just very enlightening and thoughtful. Um, we will um, please do stay in touch if this is your first time at a TJI event, please do stay in touch and uh, with our newsletter and through social media and um, keep up. We These are, um, Ray's paper today is a good example of the sorts of discussions that we do try to facilitate here. Um, and um, very finally, just to say thank you to Mairead, um for a wonderful, yeah. wonderful and, and thought-provoking discussion. I hope you got some value from it too. Um, 
Definitely. And, uh, yeah, and we'll and take care, everybody.